think Hello. I missed your first call. Oh wait, I just got a picture of uh, who's that? It's that it's like, uh, no, Ogre it's, from uh, huh? the movie Revenge of the Nerds. Is that the guy who was in um, Weekend at Bernie's? He's he's possible. He's a character actor, but that specific movie is Revenge of the Nerds, uh, where he screams "Nerds." <laughs> got it. Yeah, I just everybody's like favorite movie. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So we're 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 coming to you today on the Stack Overflow podcast number three. Hopefully, better sound. We're recording this using Skype and Pamela for Skype, which is a little twenty dollar program that you you buy and you add it into Skype and it lets you record those conversations and it should also allow us to play uh to play sounds and and you know what i got rid of all that audio equipment i had here on on my desk all those mixers and stuff that 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 leo laporte and and adam curry convinced me were necessary i don't really think they're necessary i think what we're going to do is we're just going to record this using software and then i'll use uh um a program called levelator which will uh, uh, level, which will basically adjust the levels on the on the file that we generate, so that we all come out at the same volume. Yes, there was growing amount of unrest about the difference in volume levels. I think people were perceiving it as a, a slight, which uh, and yeah. they're having difficulty hearing me. So. And I don't quite know how how much levelator will really work. Where did that thing go? Uh, because you know sometimes one person has. I, I think I have a. You know, if one person has a lower voice or a more bassy voice or. Whatever it may sound like, they're at different levels, even if they're not technically at different levels. Or right, and Joel, what kind of headset are you using? Anything fancy? Um, no, I just have a, pl- a plain old Plantronics headset, um, not the USB thing. The advantage of that is that uh, then I can plug it into this little switch to turn on them, to turn on the uh, to switch between the speaker and the headset. Right. Basically, when I'm not talking on the headset, you want the sound to go out the speaker. Otherwise, you don't hear it when your computer rings. Yeah, I'm I'm using a Plantronics, but I'm using their USB model, so it shows up as another sound card. But what I like about that is you can configure applications so that they specifically talk to the headset, like Skype, for example. Ooh. So you get this nice segregation of sounds between outputs, and it's pretty that cool. That makes sense. It, it's also very, very clean, because Windows just detects it, and it just sort of automatically works, and it's really pretty nice. So I, I do recommend USB headsets as a general rule. Okay. Easier to deal with. That'll be that'll be the next uh, the next uh, iteration of this. Uh, we should probably not make this a podcast about podcasting. I think probably well, the first three I, episodes of every yes. podcast in the world are about podcasts. Yeah. Well, I think you know we're just trying to you know iteratively improve what we're doing. Yeah. We just want to make sure people know that we're a we're listening to their feedback and b acting on it. That's all. That's right. So what's new? So. So let's see some some new things. I wanted I had a few things left over from from last week that I wanted to talk about. We didn't get to okay. um, one of them, and, and these are largely based on the feedback that we got uh, off the initials posts that you and I both did on Stack Overflow. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them I kind of covered on my blog, which was the whole "Our Books Dead" uh, theme, and I think a lot of people got that out of your post, your initial post, yeah, because uh, you started very provocatively with software developers don't read books anymore, which is largely true, but there are some caveats around that, like 
And when we talked about doing Stack Overflow, uh, we believe it's it's going to be very complementary to what I view as like classic programming books, the books that teach you, you know, why you should program and how you should program, uh, the theory of programming more than you know, here's how you do this in Ruby or here's how you do this in Java. Mm-hmm. Uh, those kind of books I love. And we think that Stack Overflow fills a niche that those books don't fill, which is namely the immediate gratification aspect of programming. You have a problem, and you want the answer to that problem. Uh, And and that's what Stack Overflow is really about. And actually, you know, Joel, it's funny. When I started my blog, I I literally founded it on the idea of these classic programming books that I wanted to read and share with people because I didn't have an outlet for that at my current place of employment at the time. Mm-hmm. And I never found your. You had a recommended reading list, and yours and mine are like really similar. Um, there's yeah, a lot of overlap. A, there were there were two reading lists. One, one of those was really a long time ago. I just said okay. 2002. The, yeah, God, I think and, that the original version of that might have been 2000. Um, that that reading list, like that, might have been something I did really really early on. Um, because just because I was getting so many questions saying, well, what what should I read next? Right. I don't even know what to say and, anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you just point to your blog post. It's like I had an email conversation with, uh, and I'm probably going to mispronounce his name. It, is it? It's Steve. Is it Yegi? Would you Yegi. pronounce Yegi? Yeah, okay. yes. You, I, his, I feel... his friends call him Stevie. <laughs> but I had a little email conversation with him because do you remember Joel? Uh, I remember, it's weird how you'll write stuff and I'll focus on little phrases that you've written. And one of those phrases that I always focused on, you you were sort of a an relatively early adopter of, of the Mac. And one of the observations you made is that you found the font rendering really screwy. And I thought that was interesting. And I never really understood what is it about uh, until I downloaded Safari. And Safari on Windows is unique in that it it thrusts you into the world of Apple's font rendering. Like they yeah. literally poured it over Apple's font rendering you know, lock, stock, and barrel. So I was looking at that font yes. rendering, going, "What? What happened here?" You know. <laughs> yeah. And I went back to your post, and then I wrote a post about it, and and you know, I wasn't necessarily saying it sucked or anything, but I, I wanted to understand like why they made that choice, uh, and and it was good because I learned so much from that. And you actually had a follow up post about you know sort of explaining you know do you favor the font designer like Apple does, or do you favor the pixel grid? Like mm-hmm. Microsoft does. It's not that one is more, you know, more right than the other. It's just understanding the choices you make, which is true of so many things in programming, right? It's not like there's the one right choice. It's understanding all the trade-offs involved in your choice and making the appropriate one. And Steve Yegi just discovered that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you saw his post, but he's like, he's like, I was in an Apple store and, and I saw how great the font rendering was, and I could actually read it from a distance. And I've decided that Apple, you know, just renders fonts better. Uh, and I, so I emailed him basically links to my blog post, and I felt kind of guilty because, you know, here I am saying, hey, Steve, I don't really want to talk to you. I want you to read my blog. <laughs> right. But I thought it was really helpful so that he could get a sense of, you know, why uh, he had that perception and, and, and what's going on there. And yeah, eventually of- people figure it out. I don't think I, – you know, I don't – I honestly, I don't even think that even the people working on typography at Microsoft or Apple are even completely necessarily aware of what they're favoring and why their font rendering is so different, and uh, and for for any listeners who are listening who didn't, didn't follow the whole discussion, um, you know Microsoft had this clear type group that actually specifically designed some fonts that were designed for screen legibility, that were and uh, and that meant that they were designed the font itself was designed so that it fit in the pixel grid, and uh, Apple has never done that. They've always taken print fonts and they've used anti-aliasing to just kind of approximate, and then they, it just doesn't quite fit in the 
the pixel grid so well. And so it comes yeah. out – it does come out blurrier, but it is truer to the, uh, to the underlying font. And uh, if you're doing uh, – certainly if you're doing design work for the printed page, uh, you, there's, a, there's just sort of a huge difference between these fonts on the printed page where you have 300 or 600 or 1,200 DPI that you don't get on a computer screen where you get at best 96 DPI. And uh, so the truth is th- there are um, really only – you know, for, for – for Computer monitors, there are really only four or five possible fonts that you can see the difference between, uh, unless you really do this Apple-style anti-aliasing. Um, so many of the, like, basically, uh, at, at smaller fonts, like around the 9.10 point size on Windows, all the sans-serif fonts look like all the other sans-serif fonts, and all the serif fonts look the same, and you can barely tell the difference. And, and the difference is that the Apple's way of rendering those um, you can sort of see the difference in the, the general, the weight, the feel of a paragraph of text. Does it feel uh, crowded or, or spindly? Does it feel heavy or light? And how dark is a whole paragraph of text? And that's something that Microsoft's fonts never preserve because they've all been hammered into the on-screen 96 DPI or 72 DPI pixels. Um, the other difference is sort of a long-time difference, which is that Apple traditionally did have 72 dots per inch and Windows had 96. So... Uh, so pretty much Apple had to use forms of anti-aliasing just to show you anything. They just had truly blurrier fonts for, the, for a long time. Yeah, and, and uh, the other thing I liked in your response to that was you pointed out that people, and, and you see this too in programming languages as well, people like what they're used to, right? There's certainly mm-hmm. an aspect of, I grew up with this, or this is how I learned to do it, or this is what I've always seen, so this is what I like. And I think that's why, as a Windows user, being used to ClearType, which I think ClearType is excellent, uh, seeing Safari's rendering, I was like, oh my god, you know, my eyes are going to bleed from the weirdness of this font. Right. Uh, but I think if you if you saw it every day on the Mac side, you would grow used to it and say, okay, this is the way a font should look. And I've heard people describe ClearType as, quote, spindly, because yeah. you know it's hammered into the pixel grid, so it doesn't blur over. It, it, it's very rigid. It's very tight. It aligns very sharply. Uh, with the the pixel matrix. Yeah, when you, when you have a when you have a line of of text, imagine a horizontal line that's a part of some letter. Uh, it's either got to be one pixel wide or two pixels wide, and those are your two choices. Uh, whereas on the Mac, uh, it could be a pixel, and then the pixel to the right of it could be a little bit gray, to to imply that it's a little bit wider. Um, and uh, and obviously the sub pixel rendering as well, where they're turning on and off the individual red, green, and blue. Um, sub-pixels, so every pixel has got a red, a green, and a blue element, which can be turned on and off independently. So, uh, anyway, yeah, that, that, I think it really is just sort of a, it's a little bit subjective, it's a little bit what you're used to, and it's just wrong to try to use, um, or, or you're, you're, you're almost guaranteed to not be well-received if you use Apple rendering on Windows or Windows rendering on Apple. It's just going to make you look foreign, strange, and, and, and badly ported. And, uh, I believe somebody told me I, it, it may be possible in Safari. I haven't tried to, to to turn off the quartz rendering and use the native rendering for for your fonts. Not 100 percent sure if that's possible, but uh, uh, if I were Apple, that that would be the default because there's no reason to have people just not liking your web browser just because it appears arbitrarily different. So one of the cool things about I think Safari is actually a fantastic browser. I have very deep respect for what the WebKit team is doing. I think they're really innovating in, in, in ways that Firefox isn't, and certainly IE isn't. 
but I agree that they they should backport that. And in fact, they have. They announced that in their latest their latest uh, what they call nightlies. You can actually switch to the Windows native method of font rendering, which I thought was very nice to accommodate cool. the platform. Yeah, I and mean, that should just be the default because they're just going to get yelled at on Windows, even if they're right. It doesn't matter. It's just it's just sort of like, you know, walking into a restaurant in Rome and shouting loudly in English. You're just going <laughs> to aggravate people. Speak speak right. Latin, damn it! This is Rome. Yeah, but, but you know, font rendering is neat because I think it's very computer sciency. Like certainly, Newth spent all those years working on his, you know. Text or what? Latex or text layout engine? Where he's gonna? He's like, oh, I'm gonna write a programming book, and then he got distracted for like five to seven years. Yeah, I thought it was like fifteen or something. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. All these technical issues on computer science around how to lay out the printed page. It's really, really fascinating. And is, is there anything more fundamental than font readability? It's really, really fundamental to readability. And what do you do online all day? At least what I'm doing most of the time is just read, read, read. So I think these are really important issues, and it's, it's really fun to understand them. I, I think it's very helpful. I think it's very germane to programming, because sometimes people will criticize my blog and say, well, what does this have to do with programming? And I would say, well, if you think about it, this has everything to do with programming. I don't view programming as you know, the act of typing in code and pre- you know, compiling. It, it's so much more than that. Um, and I think this is a good example of that, and I found it fascinating. So. Cool. Okay, so uh, fonts. Anything on the? Uh, do we have any to dos on the to do list to cross off there? Any agenda items? Uh, so let's... <laughs> no. Okay. What's no, 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 no. Uh, we have uh, we do have a server now, a dedicated server. So oh, I'll talk yeah. a little bit about the technology stack we're going to use now. And the other, and this ties back into another theme I saw in, in the Reddit uh, comments to your post and my post, mm-hmm. uh, we are going to be language agnostic in terms of the actual site itself. This is Absolutely. not a Windows developer site, necessarily. Uh, we're going to really encourage you know, an open kimono policy of if you're programming and you, you have a question or answers, then that's what Stack Overflow is about. We're not going to segregate, oh, you right. know, this is the basic programmer's ghetto, right? <laughs> Yeah. Or you know, this is for the really cool guys who know C. And uh, by the way, I've gotten so much crap about the fact that I, I don't know C now, thanks to you and our previous <laughs> podcast. So I, I hope that makes you happy. Like I get a lot of crap about that now. Mm. I don't love. Are you going to learn pointers. C now? Yeah. Well, no. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, to me, it's like deciding. Should I go spear hunting? All the cool kids do well? it. Uh, All the cool kids like, do it. Uh, I just feel like I'm going to be spear hunting for my own food now instead of going to the grocery store by. Worrying well, about this let me ask you this. Never- Should you ever do something that's not the most practical way to do something? Well, sure. I mean, that's not a real question, is it? Uh, uh, well, yeah, because your, your, your argument was it's not practical to use C, so should I do that? No. And I'm just saying, well, that, that's not a valid argument. It's, it's not actually the case that just because C is not practical. Although, you know, we got some pushback from that. There's millions of systems. Yes, I know the Linux kernel is written in C. There's lots of existing legacy code that's written in C. And there's future code that, that is and will and should be written in C. Um, and, you know, I sort of made an offhand comment in about one sentence, which is that C is almost never the right choice for a language for a new coding project. But, you know, we're talking about the millions of types of code that somebody sits down to write in the world. Only a small percentage of those is C the right choice, but but you know there's still that, that class still exists uh, for which C is the right choice. Um, but th- but that said, I mean you can't you know it, uh, it, it's true you could say I, I want to be very pragmatic. I'm never going to have any use for this. Uh, why should I l- 
learn this or why should I do it the hard way once and and um, but but I think what what all of the all of those of us who are giving you grief for trying to tell you is that uh, the process of doing that whether or not you like it uh, you're going to learn some fundamental things that that you know we see see as being it's not it's not quite like teaching Latin in which the effort you know Latin is taught in the high schools in order to teach you to be logical and rigorous and to Think about things that are difficult in a particularly logical pattern and teach you a way of thinking. And, and I don't think that's exactly true of C. I think it's, it's more true just that it's a language that um, – uh, let's see. That basically, it, it, it sort of reveals uh, directly certain underlying and important concepts uh, of computer programming that are, that are kind of crucial. For, for example, you know, it's sort of like – if the difference between an automatic and a manual transmission in a car, that it's true you can always find an automatic transmission. And I wouldn't tell you to go learn how to drive a manual in case one day you're caught and, and the only car available is a World War II era Jeep and, and you need to drive around in that until you wish you had, a, uh, had learned how to drive a manual transmission. But what I'm really telling you is learn how to drive with a manual transmission so you understand gears and you understand gearing ratios and you understand low and high gears and you understand – you know that fundamental relationship between torque and speed. You know, uh, I, I don't want to beat the C C uh, C C plus plus issue into the ground. Um, but uh, server, you were talking about that uh, we have a new server. That's worth talking about. Yep, yep. So we have a dedicated uh, uh, dual quad core Windows Server 2008 64-bit server uh, from Crystal Tech, and that's all good to go. Um, so how could you possibly use Windows? Good lord, man. Right. Well, that's what I was going to jump into. So one of the reasons I'm using Windows, even though Stack Overflow, the site, will be absolutely language agnostic and, and decidedly so. Like we're, That's one of our stated goals is to be agnostic about yeah. language. Yeah. Uh, we are not personally going to be Except agnostic Lisp. about language. Except Lisp. Lisp users are not welcome under any circumstances. <laughs> but I was more worried about that. We're completely language agnostic. Yes. Yes. Sorry. We are not personally going to be language agnostic because uh, I need to. We need to actually build the site. And in terms of uh, people actually working on it, Joel's in an advisory role. I'm going to be writing code, and then uh, a friend of mine, Jared, I'll be working very closely with. So it's sort of like 1.5 developers. So I need to actually get things done. So in order to do that, I'm going to sort of fall back on what I know, and what I know is uh, essentially ASP.NET. So ASP.NET is going to be. Uh, the platform, and I actually really like ASP.NET. There's things I don't like about the stack, like the, the web forms model and, and so on and so forth, but as a core programming environment, I feel like it's it's more than up to the task, and there's quite a bit of uh, tooling around it that's going to help us out, so I'm looking forward to that. I just want to get that out of the way uh, early on yeah. as far as like technology choices. And also to segregate and say, again, what we build the site in does not equate to what the ultimate stack overflow site will be about in the end. Uh, technology choice doesn't matter, and, and Joel, you know that more than anybody else with the whole Wasabi thing, right? Like, which I've come full circle on. I used to be very critical of that, and now I, I've decided it doesn't matter because unless you're open source, nobody's uh, actually going to see your code. Matter, you anyway. see. <laughs> it does matter, you see, because 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 Fogbugs was written in Wasabi, and therefore we were able to port it to .NET in you know about a month uh, of of work, and so Fogbugs. Uh, uh, as of today, is actually running on .NET, which means it runs on Mono. Uh, it's a lot faster than the old VB script slash PHP version. Um, so um, having control of our compiler uh, has actually really paid off. And, and we've got some features in Wasabi that aren't in C Sharp, that aren't in any other kind of off-the-shelf language uh, we could use. It's really nice. So uh, No, I mean, 
to me, it's like I don't care if you guys are using black magic at this point as as an external yeah. consumer. I mean, if I was working at Fog Creek, I think I would have more deeper concern about what we were programming in. But as an ex- as a consumer, who cares, right? It's, right, it's that's true. They shouldn't. Uh, they they don't. You know, they're, they're, uh, I've seen uh, a competitor of ours who will remain nameless um, actually advertising that their product is built in Java, uh, as if this was uh, a reason to buy it or, or not buy it. And and I don't think any anybody buying software really cares, except for a very few, um, shall we say, teenagers who are still kind of you know in in their throes of religious fundamentalism or flag-wavingism or, or whatever it may be, and they've, they've decided that you're a part of the enemy camp and therefore they don't want to use your product because you're the enemy, because you're insufficiently hateful towards Java or Microsoft or PHP or Lisp or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Uh, one, and one final thing before we get into the listener questions. I think that covers the, the logistics items I wanted to cover first. But somebody made a comment that asking if I had jumped the shark by osmosis now that I'm working with you, which I thought was very funny, and also referencing that original post I made about the wasabi thing where... What, okay, so what is exactly jumping the shark? Uh, so jumping the shark is uh, based on a Happy Days television show. The Fonz, you remember that character, A, hey, the Fonz? Yeah. On Happy Days? Yeah, sure. So in the later days of, of Happy Days, when, when it was sort of the show was falling apart, not becoming, not being as popular... They also they first they added a little kid. That's a lot of things. A lot of times shows will do that to sort of bolster their ratings. Like, oh look, we added a cute little kid. Well, Chachi. please watch our show. No, I think it, the classic example is uh, Family Ties, that Michael J. Fox show. Yeah. They added a little kid to that show at the end of its life. Isn't so that Leonardo DiCaprio? Gosh, I don't even remember. That was Leonardo uh, DiCaprio. Yeah. So that's one of the go-to devices and then the, the general term for a show that's falling apart not popular anymore at the end of its life cycle but desperately yeah. wanting your attention is yeah. jumping the shark they'll do something just ridiculous to get your attention and in this case in happy days it was the fonz jumping a, a pool containing a shark on his motorcycle right. and he was actually wearing shorts too which the fonz wearing shorts just doesn't compute like would the fonz ever really wear shorts no i uh, think he had to wear jeans at all times it was the law Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's what the jumping the shark reference is about. E.g., your popularity had flags, so you were trying to get attention, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's what that was about. Oh, I see. Tonight on a very special Joel on software. Yeah. Exactly. I, in in which I become addicted to something and and recover from it all in one twenty two minute episode, thirty minutes with commercials. Right. Right. No, I, I feel a little awkward about that. It's 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 a lot easier to criticize someone over the web than it is like directly to their face. By the way, yeah. <laughs> but you know, at the time, I, I really was kind of upset about this because people misunderstand. They think, oh, you're just doing this to get ratings. And let me—that is absolutely not true. Like the thing I did with Paul Graham, and the thing I did with you, I was really on some level really offended by that information. Like it really bothered me. I, I think a lot of people were offended that we were, that we did Wasabi, and I think. Personally, the reason I believe – I mean you can tell me if it's different in your case, but personally the reason I believe that is that I don't think the average working programmer – and by average, I mean you know the, the, the majority of programmers – understands uh, uh, how easy it is to build a compiler and, and that that is – because pretty much anybody that has done a computer science degree has taken a course in, in compilers and knows how to sit down and write a compiler. That's – or I don't know, certain – maybe it's only the good computer science degrees. I have no idea. I um, seems to me like that's that's sort of one of these things that you kind of learn to do. Just like a, you know, if you're going to be a chef, you know how to make a risotto. It's not that hard. And um, and uh, a lot of working programmers that are working, shall we say, higher up on the stack, 
where they're building application software using these great and exciting tools that somebody else gave them. Uh, and uh, for them, building their own tools just never really entered into the imagination of the realm of possibility. So, uh, you know, I think that if I had said, you know, uh, we build our own um, uh, desktop computers, we buy the we buy the boxes and, and, and motherboards and we snap them together ourselves, which we don't. But if I had said that we did, would anybody be as offended? And, you know, maybe not. They'd be like, yeah, okay, I can, I can see how you would, you would do that. It's not that stupid. But, but a compiler to, 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 to many people, I think a compiler was such a dark mystery as to how that thing could possibly work and what it could possibly do. And, and, and why would you ever make your own? Um, so I think a lot of people were like a little bit shocked by that. A lot of people also, um, you know, I don't always uh, phrase things as well. And, and I actually introduced Wasabi um, in, in a two-part answer to a question that a friend of mine asked me. And, and a friend of mine asked me what application he should build, he should be doing development in, uh, what, what, what programming stack basically, uh, .NET, Java, PHP, whatever the choices were. And it was sort of a major new project. And it was very mission critical for them. And I, I do want I do have to say that it was sort of, in some sense, enterprisey, uh, whether that's a good thing or not. In other words, it was not the kind of thing where they wanted to give people, you know, do the latest and sexiest thing. They really just needed to get their work done, and they needed it to work, and they needed it to be reliable, and they couldn't be messing around with a stack that didn't have, uh, you know, they didn't want to have to be tweaking their stack all day long or, or messing around with their tools. They just wanted reliable tools that did what they needed. And... Uh, and he sort of said, you know, what should I use? And then he said, what do you use? And I answered both questions in sequence. I said, you know, it doesn't matter. If you use the Java stack, that's fine. If you use the uh, ASP.NET and the Windows stack, that's fine. If you use uh, – did I say – I don't even know if I said anything about PHP. I think I said um, Python is um, uh, just about ready for prime time, uh, which I still feel. And Ruby is not quite ready for prime time, which I still feel. I think that Ruby is – is uh, oh, you know, I'm going to be speaking at, the, at RailsConf, so – uh, Ruby is wonderful, you guys. It's just great. It's totally ready for prime time. Um, uh, no, but but honestly, there are you know there are people that are running into deployment issues with, with, with Ruby. I think that Twitter is not as stable as it should be, and I attribute some of that to Ruby. And I've seen some some failed projects and some some projects that have succeeded, and that will not always be the case. And Ruby has enormous strengths and enormous advantages. It's also got some disadvantages, like uh, in terms of performance, that have not yet been fully solved, and, and I don't see any reason why they won't be, but uh, they haven't yet. Uh, the difficulty of deployment, that kind of thing. Uh, I'm not such an expert on it. All, all I know, you know, I don't. I'm not a deep, deep Ruby programmer. I, I know Ruby, uh, but but I, I I'm not an expert on it by any means. I've never written any major applications in it. Um, but I can tell you from just listening to the people that I work with and my customers who use Fogbugs and the people that I talk to all day long by email or on my website that there are just too many cases of, of Ruby being not quite ready for prime time, which doesn't mean. You know, which just means for his application, it wasn't there. So I'm being too defensive there. But basically, uh, and also don't forget, this was when Ruby on Rails was less than a year old, I think. Uh, right. And then I answered his second question, which is, what do you use? And I said, well, we use Wasabi. It's a custom thing. And then some people saw that as, oh, my God, you're saying that Ruby's not ready and you're using some wacky. Uh, you know, and our, our situation is very different. We're, we are... Uh, the kind of people that love to tinker with our stack. We like to make our own tools. I don't, you know, we, we every single programmer at Fog Creek is smart enough to write a compiler in a week, and uh, and so you know, for them to just edit the compiler and change the compiler is easy. If the compiler doesn't work the way we expect it to, we, we you know we fix it. We don't we don't really care. And and um, and so for us, actually using a crazy language like Wasabi that nobody else is using, 
it, you know, as long as it, uh, you know, it gives us access to the .NET libraries, which it does now, and, and as long as it, we control every aspect of the compiler, that's actually safer for us than using Ruby, where if anything happened, you know, we'd be at the mercy of somebody else's compiler. I mean, I guess we could fork it and try to fix their bugs. But I'd rather have the, the, the complete control over all aspects of the technology that I use. So, uh, right. so some people thought that that was hypocritical. Uh, for me to be dissing Ruby on the one hand and yet advocating the use of an even more ridiculous language, which isn't even published. I mean, you can't even get it. Uh. <laughs> right. But I think to me, it boils down to, you know, you, you guys have a business. It's essentially closed source. As long as the product works and people are happy with it, I don't care if you guys are using COBOL, really. It's, it's, so that's the, right. the realization that I had. It's like this is an entirely internal thing for you guys mm-hmm. and exposing it, it do- doesn't ultimately matter. Um, and you know, I think that's great. What I was concerned about, though, is the idea that if you've worked with developers at all, you've worked with developers that love reinventing the wheel for no good reason. This is a very, very common failure pattern. So oh, yeah. my concern was they would read, well, Joel Spolsky says that we should be writing our own language. And they would go <laughs> off and write hundreds and thousands of the crappiest languages you can possibly imagine. Right? Not everybody despite what you said earlier, I think it does take a, quite a bit of skill to do these things well. Like, if you compare PHP, the language, with C-sharp, the language, you can see there are some problems with this model, right? Like, yeah, one has uh, sort of a yeah, master yeah. language designer behind it, the other has, like, thousands of just random people, and you can really tell based yeah. on that. So, that was my other concern, is people would read that and go, oh, I, I'm going to create my own framework, I'm going to create my own everything, and it's all going to be crappier than stuff you could just go out and get, you know, that would work so much better. That, that was That's my true. concern. Um, so, you know, it works on, I think, several different levels. That so, is true. And in fact, honestly, if we had been starting from scratch, Wasabi would never have been the strategy. The other part, the other thing that's very unusual about the Fog Creek case is that we had an existing body of code, of legacy code, basically. There was a large body of well-debugged, wonderful code that I didn't want to give up on that had taken years and years and years to develop that uh, we needed to continue working and we didn't want to have to rewrite all that. So it would, if it's a choice of rewriting you know, let's call it 20 developer years worth of code in a new language versus spending a couple of months in writing a compiler that can interpret that old code and maybe add some features. So what we actually had was this old VB script code, and that goes back to a time when Fogbugs was developed and there weren't great alternatives. You know, it was years before .NET, um, year, you know, years before Rails, years before... I mean, it was just a, it was a long time ago when VB script was actually not a bad choice even before PHP, right. uh, and, uh, and 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 you know we always we always had the criteria of running on the mo- mo- because we have to run on our customer servers. Uh, we want to have sort of the minimum runtime requirements. We don't want to tell them, and then you have to install you know this piece of this this other stack. Like and we didn't in particular we didn't want to have to tell them to get a Java virtual machine up and running because um, that's not easy and they're not really 100% compatible. Uh, we just wanted to be able to throw it on IAS or throw it on Apache and have it run. Right, and again, I think the relationship between you and your customers. If if you're if you guys are happy and your customers are happy, it literally does not matter what I think. And I think that is the <laughs> ironclad important message to get out of that. Yeah, um, it, it's your business. As long as everybody's happy, then then why not? Well, uh, I mean, you can't. Uh, on the other hand, it's not fair to like say all blog articles, which in any way try to second guess what anybody is doing in any company, are inherently invalid. Because it's between them and their customers. I mean, it's you know you're certainly welcome to try to second guess what a company is doing, or what they think. On the other hand, um, it, it is also true that uh, the people who criticize decisions that Fog Creek takes uh, based on a couple of blog posts 
should realize before they criticize that those blog posts are, are mere snapshots as to what, what is going on here internally and that if there's a debate that happens at Fog Creek about how to do something or what technology to use, you know, in the case of uh, uh, some of the decisions that we made about the future directions of Wasabi, you know, that was a two-day off-site with nine people where we went out to the Hamptons and we made marshmallows and, uh, and hot chocolate and spent two whole days discussing, you know, how we wanted to do you know what, what, how we wanted our technology platform to evolve, and and you know all if if you had been there and you come to a different conclusion, that's one thing. But to then you know just sort of like read a blog post about it or just to hear what I just mentioned about the two days, and immediately go off and write a write a write a, an angry blog post about the, the crazy people at Fog Bugs Fog Creek and they don't know what they're doing and so on and so forth. Um, well, you have to recognize that you're probably missing some of the information that we had when we made that decision. We're not necessarily stupid. Although it's possible that we're stupid, you know, it's 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 just as likely that you're just that, that the outsiders are just a little bit misinformed. Well, I think sometimes that's why people don't publicize a lot of the internal things uh, that they're doing for that reason because of the misinterpretation and lack of context. Uh, mm-hmm. So one final thing before we get, I do want to get to some questions. Uh, we do have a logo design contest that ends, I think, today. Uh, and I want to thank Paul Annesley of Ninety Nine Designs for sort of hooking me up and getting me. Uh, sort of into that community, but I've been really pleased with a lot of the logo submissions. Yeah, those so. were those are some pretty awesome uh, logo submissions. Um, I don't know if it. I, I mean, you and I probably bring a lot of publicity to those contests. Well, you because I don't think I mentioned it, but but the amount of publicity that is brought to those contests by us is probably relatively high. Now, I have a question. I mean, when you pick one, is that it? You got to pay the five hundred twelve dollars and. Yeah, as far as I know, what would you? And that's the logo that you get. Well, because the way it works with some of the commercial ones, like Logo Works, um, you get you get five different designers or however many, depending on the package you choose, they, and they design the initial version. But uh, but then you can just sort of ask them to tweak it again and again and again, and you can just sort of modify it into something different, or you can tell them I want this part of this and this part of that, and. Uh, uh, you, you can basically go over several other iterations. Like, I love this design, but I think the colors need to be a little brighter or the colors need to be a little darker or get rid of this drop shadow or use a different font. So 99designs doesn't have any kind of concept like that. It's, it's of, a pretty loose relationship, but I'm going to be sucking up tremendously to the winning designer because I really want to have a little bit of an ongoing relationship uh, for little tweaks like that. So we'll mm-hmm. see what happens uh, with that because um, one of the complaints I read through Twitter, I posted on Twitter that I was doing this, and I think some people took uh, were kind of offended. Designers were offended by this process. They felt like it, it cheapened the craft because – there are all these people submitting designs that weren't necessarily getting paid and so on and so yeah, forth. Yeah, it's so. sort of a winner-take. I mean, the truth is I, I'm very sympathetic to that because these contests are sort of winner-take-all systems. It's like where one person out of 100 gets paid right. and you know, 99 people do work and don't get paid. And I suspect what may be happening is that the designers who participate in these logo contests have their set of five logos that they designed, and they're just going to keep throwing them up for every single contest that seems even remotely relevant. With right. a little tweak here or there, and just hope right. to eventually hit one. Yeah, no, but um, yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I, one thing that's kind of cool is Leon Bambrick of Time Snapper, which is a really cool sort of record what you're doing Windows time tracking software. It literally takes screenshots and builds a timeline and sort of a tag cloud of what you've been doing. Uh, uh-huh. Offered up some licenses. So for the second, third, and fourth designs, I want to be giving them Time Snapper licenses, courtesy of Leon, who was, was very kind of him to do that. Cool. So I'm going to reach out to the people that didn't quite win and, and give them something, which I, th- I think is nice. Yeah. I think uh, also, uh, you know, the, the, way, the way the world works with graphic designers, there's sort of a real tendency 
uh, for uh, it, well, once you've been a graphic designer for a while, you've probably had some client that tried to get free work out of you by asking you to submit, uh, you know, a design or or to do some work basically right. uh, uh, for free. And then if we like that, we might hire you back. And there's a lot of cheap and 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 and, and evil clients that will, that will do this just to try to get free work out of people. And so uh, there's sort of a, a, an understanding around, around graphics professionals, graphics designers, also just illustrators, photographers, and so forth, that you know that's why you have a portfolio. You have a portfolio so that the client can decide whether to hire you. But if they hire you, they've got to pay you for your work. And whether or not they use it, whether or not they like it, uh, you, you, know, you have a right to be paid for your work. So, so I think that's why the, the contest sort of, um, you know, that's, that's sort of, I, I feel like that they're, that's probably what they're reacting to. No, and I agree. There's definitely concerns, but my hope is that the people entering the contest are not. This is like basically a day's work. So somebody for a day's work is getting five hundred twelve dollars. Oh, yeah, not even, not even a day's work. Yeah, and and my think is my thinking is okay. You're taking a chance. You're not putting too much effort into this. This is iterative kind of brainstorming kind of design. You're not going to spend a week coming up with this comprehensive. Portfolio. So we had what like two hundred and fifty. Uh, it's over two hundred. I think it's two hundred and twenty or so. Entries, okay. but a lot of them are derivatives. A lot of them are, just, and some of them are really bad. So, right? I mean, so they're getting two, two, two dollars on average. Yeah, but so the average all, person can expect to make two dollars. But not all work, you know. Not all work is created equally, and not all <laughs> income is distributed equitably. This is just the way the world is. So hopefully, if you entered the contest, you knew what you were signing up for, and oh yeah, I mean, you know, as long as they know what they're signing up for, that's fine. Uh, I, 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 I suspect that people probably won't do this too much unless they start winning a lot more. Often, and I think probably the average contest will have a lot fewer entries than than, than ours because they won't have you publicizing it. But um, the ones I liked in terms of the logos, you know, what I was kind of looking for myself was what a Stack Overflow really is. There were a lot of people that kind of had this idea of something toppling over or, or spilling over or, or falling over. And that's not really what happens in a Stack Overflow. I mean, a Stack Overflow is all about overwriting something. In other words, you've got this stack and it's growing and it continues to grow and it doesn't fall over. It just overwrite something important. Nobody really quite captured that. Some people did did at least capture the idea of a, a stack that grows too high. Um, so, um, and, and you know, there's nothing wrong with the overflow metaphor as it is. I don't think anybody's going to really object to it. It just doesn't really, to a programmer that knows what a stack overflow really is, it's sort of weird. It sort of looks like a graphic designer's impression based on what the word overflow means in English rather than a computer scientist's impression. You're, you're not going to like what I'm about to say, but I believe no. that most of the people reading Stack Overflow ultimately, longer term, will not understand what a Stack Overflow is anyway. <laughs> so I think it's... I, I, it's, I, that, it's that error message you get when you try to write C code. <laughs> That's what they're going to say. <laughs> I don't know what it means. It's like, exactly. yeah, run your program, it says Stack Overflow. Oh, God. Yeah. Somebody, people submitted a very funny uh, Amiga... The Amiga had this very funny guru meditation error message, and uh, somebody submitted a Stack Overflow in that format, which was very amusing. So, yeah, you're right. A lot of programmers have seen Stack Overflows in terms of the error, right? You do too much recursion, right? <laughs> or you forget yeah. to exit your recursive loop and your Stack Overflows. Yeah. So I think they're familiar with the error message, but the actual technical underlying details, like the details of C, I think are going to be lost on a lot of people, for, for better right. or worse. I think it's it's almost always it's, it's almost always an infinite loop. It may also be caused by... Just a limited size stack, and you're trying to put too much, too many things on the stack. But uh, you know, 99% of the time, you see it because you're you're in an infinite loop. Right. No, that's a great observation. I'm uh, very glad that we covered that. So, how many questions do we have this week? Uh, as many as you want. 
Okay. Well, there? we're a little long, <laughs> so we got to be careful. So let's let's go ahead and get on to the questions. Okay, let's see what we got here. Um, let's uh, start with Dave in Vancouver. Hi, guys. This is Dave Kaufman, sending in from Vancouver, Canada. Joel, it's great to hear the sultry tones of your voice uh, on the podcast rather than just written. So I'm looking forward to supporting the podcast and hearing more episodes. Here's a uh, Dave, question. Dave is somebody that I know from, uh, uh, I guess he worked at Creo Cytex, which is a publishing software company in Vancouver. And I don't know if he's still there. Maybe he'll tell For us. You? I think uh, you've written before, and I, I tend to agree that uh, computer science as a science in universities is uh, quite uh, in, inappropriate. That is, people who want to really study the science of it are very in the minority and need to be in universities. But by the most part, we want good practitioners in the craft of software development and software engineering. And that may not be the right place for them when they're trying to find theoretical backgrounds for things that are heuristic. So my question for you is, is there any real-world use for recursion, or is it just kind of one of these made-up, interesting things that should stay in academia? Yay. Well, there's definitely a use for recursion. It's not as common as you may think, but when you're writing a compiler, you definitely need to know how to use recursion. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's an unusual choice, I think, in mainstream programming. I, I think it's definitely something you want to know about and understand, I think more so than... Uh, pointers, certainly. Yeah. I think that recursion is a very fundamental concept that programmers need to understand. Um, but yeah, I think it's less common in the wild than uh, people who practice computer uh, Yeah, science. somebody, again, somebody who's working as a, you know, in a typical insurance application level, top level, is unlikely to ever need to recurse. Although, you might, if you're getting some data in XML format and you need to kind of, you know, things can include other things, uh, you, you may have to write some recursive code. Uh, you probably will. Uh, yeah, I think make sure you I, I'm, make I'm willing to go so far as to say that recursion is a fundamental concept. Um, on the other hand, there's there's a lot of stuff in computer science, like uh, lambda calculus um, or uh, even linear algebra, uh, which is often taught as a part of the computer science curriculum. Um, synchronization primitives uh, that that you're just not probably not ever going to use that are just a little bit too theoretical. There's also this big divide, and you also spoke at this Canadian conference that I was invited to, CUSEC. Uh, yeah. And one of the things I found out there was there's a huge controversy in Canadian universities about computer science as a discipline versus software engineering as a discipline. I don't view them as different, but they have a set of terminology and set of classes that are specific to those two things. And it's hugely controversial. Well, it's there. no question that they're different. Uh, that computer science is a field of academic study that has pretty much been unchanged since the 70s. I would even go back to the 60s as, in terms of the core curriculum. Uh, that is a, a, an academic course of study that in liberal arts institutions is intended not necessarily to be preparation for a career in programming or in software engineering or in software development, but to be an academic discipline of its own right with its own set of important things that you need to know and results. And, and the kinds of things you do in computer science include proving theorems, uh, proving that Programs never halt, halt for example. Uh, stuff that is was relevant to what computers were used for maybe in the early 70s occasionally, but honestly are not really really related to what a software developer does today. So uh, I, 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 I disagree. that I think computer science is a, a reasonable uh, preparation for a career as a software developer, um, and especially if you 
go, go for the whole idea of liberal arts, that you're going to university to learn kind of a, a lifetime worth of skills that are generic skills you'll be able to use everywhere, then computer science is a pretty good way to learn how to be a software developer. And, and for practical, for all practical intents and purposes, uh, the uh, elite of software developers generally have a computer science uh, education. Not always, but, 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 but often. And uh, so, um, you know, I, but that's very, very different than, than software engineering. The stuff in software engineering that probably every working programmer should learn how to design user interfaces that are easy to use, uh, for example, is something that has almost nothing to do with computer science and is not a part of traditional computer science. Uh, and uh, it should be a part of every reasonable software development or software engineering curriculum. So, and, and I think with academics, you have a lot of the same problems of practitioners versus you know people in the ivory tower studying it. So I think you got to you got to have a mixture of thinking and right. doing, right? So as long as you have a, a, a good mixture of those two disciplines, I think you're going to be fine. I don't think the term I get I get annoyed by the fact that people really harp on this terminology issue, and I think it's more about what you're doing versus what you. Well, call they, I mean, the, 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 I, I, to, in defense of the Canadians, um, the, it was pretty much the students in Canada who lobbied for a software engineering curriculum to be available. Uh, and that was because they were directly complaining at the irrelevance of many things in computer science to being a software developer uh, and the computer science department's inability to teach uh, kids things like source code control, to teach them code hygiene, to teach them uh, anything about working on a team as software developers. Um, the, the computer science curriculum as it developed just, just wound up being a different thing. You know, it's like it's trigonometry versus civil engineering. And, you know, at its heart, there are probably two or three classes that you – you both want to take, but fundamentally, they're really they're, they really are different courses, and 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 uh, you know more power to them. It's it's sort of interesting that that was a student movement in Canada that they were actually able to sort of persuade their universities to create this uh, true engineering curriculum for software engineers, which you know I, I'll bet I, I I don't know the details, but I'll bet probably only has about a quarter of the courses in common with computer science. Yeah, and I love the message there because it really is – I was appalled to read that a lot of computer science or whatever you mm -hmm. call it, uh, degree students had no idea, had no practical experience with source control. And that is as fundamental as it gets to the practice of actually writing yeah. software. Uh, and I felt like that was a huge oversight. So it's a tremendous credit to the Canadian students that they forced this issue. So I, I, I totally that, – that, that actually segues well into this call. I'm going to play another call from Nick. Hi, my name is Nick Malaguti, and I'm a computer science student at Stevens Institute of Technology. I'm going to be a senior in the fall, and in order to graduate, we are required to complete a team project. I'm not a fan of doing real-world projects as an academic exercise for two reasons. One, there is no real hierarchy within the team because everyone involved is a student. And two, if the project cannot meet the hard deadline at the end of the semester, it is not possible to move the deadline and still complete the project. Since you have both worked well, that's real life. Both of those are real life, I'm afraid to say. Uh, in real life, software development teams often don't have anybody who's in charge, uh, and they are teams of peers. And also in real life, sometimes you have to ship <laughs> you know, you have to ship the end of the semester, whatever that may be. If you're working in game development, for example, uh, that's a that's about as hard a deadline as you can get. If you work for the IRS, when you have a coding deadline, it's you know, it's extremely hard. Professionally in software development, what steps can I take as a project manager to mitigate these constraints and still complete the project successfully? Also, if you can recommend a free project management software solution, I would really appreciate it. Thank Ooh, you. Fogwugs, fogwugs. Okay, so first of all, uh, second of all, fog students. Um, you just go, you go into fogwugs, you make a free trial, uh, and then send us an email and say, hey, I'm a student. 
could you please extend my free trial? And what we'll do is we'll make that free trial last all semester for you or all year uh, until your project is done. Uh, that was the second question. Uh, what can you do to mitigate this? You know, I actually think that uh, uh, learning how to work on a team with no – with of peers, a team of peers where there's nobody in charge is a really important skill and a really important and valuable thing to learn. Absolutely. I, I think you answered it almost immediately straight away is that I think part of his question is wishful thinking that there's this idea that out in the, quote, real world, unquote, you don't have to deal with these crazy people and these crazy problems, but I think you'll find yeah. that the academic world in college is like as good as it gets. I mean, it doesn't get better <laughs> when you get out into the real world, right? So learn to deal with the problems there because you're going to have a lot of the same stuff. And, you know, everything is to a disturbing extent in the world personality driven. So the more you can learn to deal with that, I think the happier you will ultimately be. In yeah, being life. able to get things done. There's a book, uh, not the best book in the world, but the title of the book is great, which is Getting Things Done When You're Not in Charge. And this is one of the most fundamental skills that you can learn in life, uh, getting things done when you're not in charge. Um, you know, we have a, uh, a management training program, a small management training program here at Fog Creek where we train people that want to be uh, managers of software uh, companies and, and, and managers of technology. And, uh, uh, you know, it takes, it takes me a while to explain to them that the way they're going to learn to manage is not by being put in charge of a project, but rather – by, by building their own reputation and getting people to listen to them simply because they're right. In other words, they have to learn how to get things done without being in charge, which will make it easy to get things done when they are in charge later. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Let's do that. Uh, okay, another question. I don't know if I have another question. Uh, Dogbugs is free for strength. Hi, guys. My name is David Allison. I live in Ashburn, Virginia. I have, uh, I'm really excited about this show. This sounds like uh, an interesting idea, and I'm interested in seeing how it evolves. The question I have for you is, is as a .NET developer that does web-based solutions, I'm curious how you guys look at things like the Google App Engine and the impact you think that's going to have uh, you know, do you see that evolving on the .NET side where people will be able to at some point from within a, a solution or a tool like Visual Studio be able to deploy their application to a scalable uh, hosted solution uh, easily? As I've been doing web-based development for a long time, and that is probably the single most difficult thing is actually – uh, it's not building the application. It's supporting it. It's scaling it on the back end. It's all of the IT and infrastructure needs that you have. And that's something that the Google App Engine kind of makes all go away or makes it, the promise of it is is very straightforward. So I'd love to hear you guys talk about that see, and, and hear what both of you think on it. Thanks. Well, I can start with a little bit on that one. So I, I think what Google and a lot of other companies are doing now is simply removing the what I call the software installation barrier, where everything just runs out of the box. There's no, there's no software to install. It's sort of like the browser model of, do you install you know, Facebook? No, you don't. You just go to this Facebook website and everything just works. So with Google App Engine, you know, all your development would essentially be uh, ready to go out of the box. Like there's no, like think about what I had to do with Stack Overflow. Well, I have to install Visual Studio. I have to uh, you know, secure a dedicated server. Um, all these intermediate steps I have to do to get my app go live on the web, whereas with something like Google App Engine, you know, you go into your browser, you write some code, and then, bam, it's, you know, it's consumable on the web almost immediately. So they just removed a lot of the intermediate steps. Um, to me, that, that's what I see it as. Um, that, that's clearly the goal. 
Uh, that's obviously what they're trying to do. <laughs> I don't. It, it, we got a long ways to go there, though. Uh, first of all, the first. I mean, the, the first oh, sure. issues are if you're going to write code that can be uh, automatically scaled, you have to write code with constraints. For example, you give up on if you like relational databases, forget that because you don't get relational databases anymore. Relational database doesn't scale beyond you know a single a single box basically. Uh, there are ways to do that, but 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 you, you don't get the the, the real linear scalability, and so you, you got to work with a very, very different database model uh, that is not nearly as flexible as what we're used to from relational databases. Maybe it is. Maybe it's better. Who knows? Uh, um, for all intents and purposes, though, if you look at like Amazon, Amazon DB, uh, that stuff is all incredibly weak compared to what relational database programmers are, are used to being able to do. Um, the other thing is, so so you basically, you know, if you were writing a new project from scratch. Uh, you might want to try to develop it for one of these systems. Right now, it seems a little bit scary, and I haven't really gotten over this, which is uh, would you really build your mission-critical business applications on – You know, at, at what point can you actually start trusting Amazon or Google or Microsoft now with their mesh thing? At what, what point would you really start trusting them to be there with the reliability that you need? I mean, I suppose they could probably – there's, there's a bunch of different aspects to that. One is I, I assume that they could build something more reliable than you could in, in most cases. So that's good. On the other hand, uh, you know, what if Google suddenly decides that they, they, they don't want to, you know, they want to charge more? You're sort of stuck. You have to pay them. They're kind of the monopoly provider. Or what if they decide they want to charge you by the byte? They used to be charging you by the, I don't know, kilowatt or something. Certainly, there's an issue of scale. If you're going to be really big or you know have a an independent entity, you want your own server that you can totally control. You don't want those constraints by potentially even one of your competitors, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's certainly something to think about. I know in terms of blogging, one of the first things I met recommend to people is get yeah. your own domain name. Do not let your name be owned by Blogspot yeah. or Blogger or whatever. Yeah, because you're gonna because you're gonna regret um, it. And one I think day. that applies. They're gonna take something that. You- you're going to run it. Yeah. You're going to have no flexibility. You'll have no flexibility. You can't move, all that stuff. So I think that's a concern as well. But I do admire what they're doing in terms of removing the barriers to getting things done as a programmer and just putting mm-hmm. stuff up on the web. I definitely admire that. And you know, I think being not tied to the executable view of the world like Microsoft is and the desktop view is really a strength for them uh, in terms of getting more stuff out there. I don't know what the quality yeah. level will be, but I think it's certainly valid and uh, something I think Microsoft... I mean, we might... I, I hate to be an architecture astronaut here because this is all architecture astronauture. <laughs> this is architecture astronomy of, of the first degree. But uh, uh, that said, I kind of feel like these these uh, development uh, environments built... Like right now, if you develop on Google, your code is not portable to Amazon Web Services, which anyway provides a different set of services than Google provides. It's not really portable to anywhere. If you develop on Amazon Web Services, it's not portable to the Microsoft stack. Uh, you only you only have one provider. They're all providing a very, very different set of services. Many of them are trying to provide the same thing in, in kind of non-overlapping ways. Uh, and this is very much like the, the platform wars uh, of, of the olden days. Um, and until there's something reasonably standard that you can get multiple providers for, or something that everybody's using anyway, um, there's uh, you know it's 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 kind of like um, a lot of people won't place their bets until they see who's going to win, because there is this terrible risk that Google will suddenly realize that they just can't win in that business. There's no way to make money in that business, and then they just shut it all down. They tell everybody you got three months to get your stuff off because we're turning it off, 
and uh, and if you built a business on that, then you're um, uh, in trouble, uh, to put it lightly. So, uh, the, 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 right now, I think there are a lot of the more conservative businesses uh, and a lot of the more careful businesses will be saying, you know, I don't need another dependency, yet another way that my business can be ruined. Uh, I'm going to build something that I, that I control on, or I'll wait and see who wins here. Sort of like the Blu-ray versus HD DVD wars. Uh, you know, people won't jump in until uh, it's clear that there's going to be a winner. And so uh, there's going to be kind of a lot of thrashing this out as these, you know, these very, very 1.0, if not 0.0 uh, versions of, of these uh, services come out. And they're a lot of fun to play with. And, um, you know, when version 4.0 comes out and it becomes clear what the technology choices that most people are making and it becomes clear that there's a sustainable business there for the platform vendor, so platform vendor is not going to go away, uh, then I, I think only at that point will you see uh, the masses actually converting to this kind of develop this, this model of development. I'm actually – yeah. But, Joel, do you – do you see this as a winner-take-all type of scenario? Because, I mean, this is the new world of, you know, infinite bytes. There's not these plastic disks that have to be distributed and carried at Best Buy. I mean, do you really see it as this old world? Uh, no, I don't think it has scenario? to be a winner-take-all scenario. Uh, no, uh, not necessarily. I mean, yeah, and okay. uh, on the other hand, the, the truth is that, that, that a, lot of the business, a lot of the companies that are getting into this business, um, I guess there's not so many, but, you know, what is there? Amazon and Google are the most prominent, and they're – I guess there are a lot of people that provide things like, you know, virtual. You know, there have always been places we can get a virtual machine. Um, right. So, uh, um, but but a virtual machine, even even like a virtual server that you get from Amazon, where you basically configure it yourself, uh, is something that's generic enough that you can imagine getting that from someone else. In the case of Google, they're really giving you a very special, unique programming environment that would be very very hard. Excuse me, it would be very hard for anybody else to reproduce. And so if you've created a, a crap load of code for Google, uh, you're not going to be able to move it to anywhere else uh, with, with any reasonable likelihood. Right. Don't people make that claim about Microsoft, though, that, like, you're part of the Microsoft ecosystems, you're totally locked in? Uh, it depends on well, which, you know, how you selected your Microsoft. I mean, that can definitely happen. On the other hand, you know, if you write .NET tools, you've got Mono at least. Um, you know, there's another implementation. Uh, there's, right. there's one. If you write Windows code, you're writing Windows code not because you have the ability to to, to, to port it easily to somewhere else. Uh, you're writing Windows code because that's where your users are, and and you need to run on Windows because that's what people have. You just don't have any choice in that matter, and and, and the people do have it. And so uh, yeah, maybe it's not winner take all in the sense that there's certainly a, a, a healthy ecosystem for uh, Apache and IIS. There's lots and lots of different web hosting. Technologies. There's no reason you can't pick one. On the other hand, um, uh, there there is sort of the risk that um, you know these vendors will lose interest. Yeah. No, it's certainly a very interesting development. Development. I'm yeah, but but I mean, it's. Goes. I have to say, just from experience, it's years and years away. And there's definitely going to be. You're going to see. You know, in two weeks, you're going to see 37 dumb little twinky little startups that that. To do something like ordering Twinkies over the internet, uh, the showing up on TechCrunch, uh, all of which were built with Amazon Web Services. Mm-hmm. And the minute that they get listed on TechCrunch, you'll go there and you'll see whatever Google's error message is for 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 for, for an application that uses too too much bandwidth or too much CPU power. And that's all you'll really ever see of these services. And that'll pretty much be the end of that. Uh, and then, so there'll be sort of this first euphoric wave in which a bunch of dumb things are built and they never go anywhere. But but I really do. 
uh, strongly believe that you know whatever the core services that you're building, you got to build it on tools that you either control or that are available from from multiple sources, uh, or that you you totally trust. Right, and I loved. I know you had some classic posts about Excel and how they had this really radical dependency rejection yeah. culture, and I think that is important to cultivate. You don't want to have to choose your dependencies yeah. very, very wisely. I mean, you're going to have them. I mean, everything's a dependency, right? You have a CPU that you run on, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's something you definitely want to think about and, and give really due diligence to. But you're going find, to find the dependencies and eliminate them. Is was their motto. Um, we where you can. Sure. Yeah, I don't I, remember I them saying where you can. I think they said find the dependencies and eliminate them. That was really pretty much the end of their motto. Uh, yeah. Well, we're not as hardcore as, as Excel. If, you know, if they really believed in it, they would be selling a, an Excel an Excel box that you bought in a box from a Microsoft store. Well, I think I think actually they'd be they'd be running in a virtual machine, which I don't think is actually that far off in the future. But I think. I have this radical theory that everything's going to be delivered in a virtual machine eventually. That would be really nice. I mean, that's that's not a bad we'll idea, see. and definitely uh, you'll see Fogbugs moving not quite to a virtual machine, but in terms of we're going to package a lot more of our stuff. On, on Unix, we're going to probably start shipping our own uh, version of, of, of Apache, and you'll just have to run it on a different port. Um, and, yeah. Oh, sweet. You guys are going to have the Fogbugs uh, distro that we can install? Like that. I'm not really sure. I, I, I shouldn't talk about this until it's designed, actually. But, <laughs> but you know, we, we are trying to at least have a distribution that, that – that, Includes more parts of the stack, so that out of the box, if you don't mind just throwing our stuff on there, uh, you'll get something that has been tested together and that works. And if you really need to use the Apache that's on your system, then okay. But 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 if you don't, then you don't. Uh, okay. So before we leave, I just want to um, uh, uh, once again encourage our uh, listeners: if you have any questions, comments, uh, or anything you want us to play on uh, next week's podcast, to uh, make a little MP3 recording or Og Vorbis. Um, and email that to podcast at podcast stackoverflow dot com. Uh, if you don't know how to record an MP3, let me just play this. Hi, Joel and Jeff. This is Tim in Austin, and I heard you guys talking about uh, how people might record their audio uh, to send you questions in that. And I found a thing from Dave Weiner's site called blogtalkradio.com. And basically, if you go there, it's got a phone number. You can call in like I did just now, uh, record whatever you want, hang up the phone, and then it uh, outputs your uh, recordings in a simple RSS feed. It's got a little link on the page to an MP3 of your audio, which I'm about to send you. As a- uh, it's really easy, blogtalkradio.com. You call a phone number, and then it puts up that MP3 recording at a URL that is the phone number you called from. So basically, it's an extremely easy way to make podcasts. If you wanted to make your own podcast, you could just basically call that number every time from the same number, and uh, that phone, your phone number would be your podcast's URL. Check it out. Very easy, blogtalkradio.com, uh, or just use the microphone on your computer, record an MP3, uh, and uh, send it to us. Um, Stereo is not necessary. Maximum time, 90 seconds, um, even less, because, you know, i got to go through a lot of them and figure out what to play. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next week. See you next week.